0: Welcome to Orion Open Science Podcast.
1: I'm Emma Harris.
0: I'm Louisa Bengtson.
1: And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany.
0: Our guest for today is Professor Bjorn Brems. He is a professor at the University of Regensburg in the Institute for Zoology, and he is a specialist for neurogenetics. He is also a very well-known activist and advocate for open access and open science and that's why we're talking to him.
1: Yep, so um, let's hear what he's got to say about uh, publishing and peer review and all things open access.
0: Here's Björn Brems.
1: There's an article based on an interview review about um, the pseudo-incentives and you obviously feel that the uh, scientific system, as it currently stands, isn't working. Um, when was the first time you kind of came to this conclusion? When did you first realize that there were flaws, shall we say, in in the way that we do science?
2: Well, that was probably uh, more than ten years ago. Now, it must have been around two thousand and seven, eight, something like that. Um, I think I gave the first talk on this at a Science Online conference in the research triangle in 2009 or something. So I must have written and read something about that before or, or I wouldn't have been able to give the talk. <laughs> um, and um, I think it was around 2006 and 7 when um, social media came about. So at, at, at the time, there was a, 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 an RSS feed aggregator called FriendFeed, which is the technology that... Um, Facebook bought their like button off from. So the like button is not a Facebook invention, it's a friend feed invention that was bought by Facebook. And a lot of scientists, about a thousand and something scientists, uh, had found themselves or each other uh, on uh, um, friend feed and were discussing things. And then I realized a few things, and I was a postdoc at the time, uh, that I didn't really... Uh, I hadn't really realized that the journal structure that we have are not uh, written in stone and are some uh, God-given entities with which we just have to deal but There's something that we constructed, that we pay, that we keep alive, and that we feed. And then I started reading up, and I realized a whole bunch of things that were totally opaque before to me because I didn't know, I knew the journals, of course, and published there, you read them, but I had no idea who would publish them. I, I, if you had asked me in 2005, if I know any publishers, I wouldn't, be able to, wouldn't have been able to tell you any of the publishers, let alone, which journals would be published by what publisher. Uh, I would have, wouldn't have had the faintest idea. And it's just through the interactions with the colleagues online that I became aware that this is uh, something that uh, is, is very different from what I just assumed it would be. Mm-hmm. And I started looking into uh, the way journals are ranked, and I found that uh, there was quite a substantial amount of literature uh, with uh, that had to do with journal ranking and how the journal ranking is accomplished. And... Uh, then later, I realized that there's also a lot of work on how that journal rank relates to the content of what is published in these journals. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess this is something that a lot of people um, realize at some point in their career, usually, like, yeah, at least uh, towards the end of PhD and at least latest, beginning of post, basically, when you have to deal with publishing. Um, Everybody, everybody talks about impact factor, um, but when you actually talk to people, not many people actually know exactly what it is. It's, it's kind of like this entity that people think it actually does relate to impact somehow. So I wonder, maybe for our listeners, could you just like, give your version of the impact factor? What is the ranking? What is based on and
2: why is it wrong? Right. So what one of the things is that uh, somehow someone somewhere calculates uh, the impact that an article has or that a journal has. And uh, that's actually uh, not really the case. Impact Factor is is a trade name uh, for a product that's being sold by Clarivet Analytics that used to be um, sold by Thomson Reuters before they sold off their information uh, um, section. Um, And the, the, the historical backdrop goes back to the 1960s, and the only thing that it actually takes into account uh, when providing these numbers is citations. And so one can say that citations are a a, 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 a measure of impact. Um, Probably a more precise um, nomenclature would be to say it's a a measure of utility, good or bad. So uh, an article that um, gets uh, a lot of citations because a method is very useful. It's a easy to, it's a very uh, positive, that utility measure. Whereas of course, if there is an article that um, is controversial or uh, flat out wrong, and people cite it because it is wrong, and they cite something that uh, because uh, there was a mistake discovered there and are alerting other people that not to make the same mistake, uh, then of course this will also gain. A lot of citations but wouldn't necessarily have the kind of impact that one would think but rather of course a, a sort of utility but a different source of utility, a, a kind of utility than uh, for instance a method paper that would lead to widespread adoption of that method mm-hmm. um, and so the only thing that it looks at is citations and then uh, i would say a lot of people have an idea that citations is something that has to do with this impact factor Um, And most people think that it's actually calculated because the definition of the impact factor is the number of citations to an article, uh, sorry, uh, the number of citations to a journal divided by the number of articles published in that journal. However, to the largest part, the impact factor is actually negotiated between the publisher of that journal and Clarivate Analytics. And uh, this is possible because everything in the um, denominator um, is up for debate as to whether an article should count or not. And so if it's an editorial, if it's a policy article, if it's a news and news article, a review article, or a straight-up primary research article, the journal has the possibility to negotiate with Clarivate Analytics. Which of those should count? as the denominator whereas independent of whether a uh, citation is to such a citable article or a non-citable article all the citations count in the numerator so the numerator is sort of a fixed number once the year is over there were so and so many citations to this journal and that's
1: it
0: it doesn't
2: matter to what article these citations were directed
0: do you have any data on how how far it can be gamed, basically? I mean, what's what's the range you could gamify this uh, citation number versus number of articles?
2: Right. So this is so uh, this is something that's very widespread. A lot of journals, uh, a lot of journals do this. Um, um, there was a there was a, a brief study um, published in a post in a in a, in a blog post actually by 22 um, cell biology journals. And in that sample, all but uh, two or three journals uh, had negotiated uh, the content of their impact factor. And depending on how much they negotiated, um, the, the, the differences were larger or smaller. And so the, there are several examples. Um, I can think of three examples, uh, not from this sample, but from, from the literature. Um, One was FACEF Journal. Uh, They negotiated that their published uh, meeting abstracts should not be counted. And their um, impact factor went from something like one point something to 12 point something, or like like a factor of 10, roughly. Um, uh, Then, in a similar order of magnitude, plus medicine, when they went online, they, their, negotiate, their negotiation range was from 2 to 11, and then they settled on 8.6, I think, or something like that. So that's how they negotiated. So also, you know, roughly a factor of 10. Uh, and the third example is current biology. When that was bought from, um, by, by Elsevier, uh, they negotiated down the number of published articles from 500-something to 300-something, and then... Uh, correspondingly it went up by about 40 percent, um, so from seven to uh, almost 12. And so those are. this is something that uh, has been known since the 1990s. Since the early 1990s, I found publications that were describing this practice. Um, this has never been disputed. This is something that is essentially, um, for those people who care to look for it, this is uh, common knowledge, and everybody does that. And um, one can also see it if one looks at those journals with the highest impact factors, um, they have the largest number of articles that you can find in PubMed, but not in Clarivate Analytics Web of Science.
0: In your article, um, you talk about pseudomarkets, that this uh, negotiated impact factor creates a certain pseudo market. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners, please?
2: Well, the... Um, it's, well, this is part, it doesn't create a pseudo-market. The, the pseudo-market. The uh, pseudo-market arises when these numbers become important for the career of a researcher, right? So as long as these numbers just exist and uh, nobody pays any attention to it, they're not really relevant. There are, besides this uh, Clarivate analytics impact factor, there are several other uh, journal and article-level impact metrics um, but since they're rarely used in promotion, tenure, uh, or funding uh, decisions, they, it doesn't matter that they exist and that they calculate uh, impact differently is fairly much irrelevant if nobody cares about them. So the reason this has become important is because um, for researchers, it has become increasingly important to publish in, these, in, in highly ranked journals, because employers look for that. So you can go through uh, any job uh, or science careers uh, website and look at the job descriptions and uh, type in journal, and you will find that at least half of the uh, job uh, advertisements ask for someone who has published in uh, internationally peer-reviewed, high-ranking, impactful, whatever the adjective is, uh, journal. Um, and uh, probably the higher the rank, uh, the more emphasis on this um, uh, is placed. And if you uh, apply for professorships, it's uh, very common, not ubiquitous, but very common that in your application you have to list your impact factor points by essentially adding all the impact factors of the journals you have published in. And some universities are very specific and others are not. Uh, if you're rejected from a funding, then they often say, oh, your competitors were more successful in publishing in high-impact journals. Uh, so, and in, if, you're, if you're applying for tenure, similar things apply. It says, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that. Uh, I used to work at a university in Berlin uh, where uh, part of my yearly budget was decided according to the impact factor of the journals where I published in. And so, you see... There's various different ways in which all of a sudden these, well, not all of a sudden, but over the last, you know, couple of decades, um, where um, we publish has become more important now than what we publish. People not only think that where they publish is the only thing that they can really immediately control. Their publication strategy is something that's very immediate every single time you get published you can ask or you have to publish or you want to publish you can ask yourself that Um, uh, but also that we get judged if we don't have like a minimum set of papers in this triage phase we won't even our our cv won't even get looked at
1: Mm.
2: so it's not that um if i don't i won't get the job if I don't have papers in the right journals, um, if you make it to a job interview, that's probably not so relevant anymore. The problem is without papers in the right journals, you're just not going to get invited. And so without these invitations, there's no job.
0: But you understand sounds super uh, bleak, bleak, bleak. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, depressing. Um, and basically, Everybody's saying that. Um, did you find your own personal strategy how to deal with this? How do you look at job applicants?
2: Um, and uh, with regard to um, positions where I'm in the search committee, then I'm just one of several. And what I'm trying to do there is to try and prevent people from looking at where people have published by uh, citing the literature. Uh, and the literature, and this is probably the most pernicious, pernicious aspect of this supermarket, uh, which essentially is, is a competition, right? It's not a market, it's a competition. And uh, so people uh, strive not to find the next interesting discovery, but to find the next paper. And the hope of the uh, outsourcing, so to say, of these decisions to journal editors is that those are one and the same, that an exciting discovery gets published in the high-ranking journals, and the less exciting discoveries get published in the lower-ranking journals. Now, in terms of excitement, that may actually be true. It's difficult to quantify excitement, Um, but uh, I'm sure uh, articles such as the one about the MMR vaccine causing autism is a very exciting article. Um, And uh, the discovery that um, you just have to dump uh, regular cells into acetic acid to get uh, stem cells was also a very exciting result. The problem is that they're both wrong. And so uh, uh, when one then looks at, and what I would argue is what's more relevant to hiring professors and to funding research, what's more relevant than excitement is whether that excitement is actually warranted or whether it's just a tabloid headline that may or may not be true. And so one can look at it, one can quantify that, in fact. So if we take impact factor as a measure of prestige, so we leave out that it's negotiated, we leave out that the way the numbers are derived uh, is actually mathematically flawed as well. So we just say, okay, we have empirical evidence that this impact factor is highly correlated with our subjective notion of journal prestige. So if you give an expert in in, in their field, you give them 10 journals and say, okay, rank them according to prestige, then this rank that the uh, um, uh, researchers construct from that correlates very well with impact factor. So this makes impact factor a very nice tool to look at the empirical evidence. Okay, so if we now take articles from these journals and look at how well was the research done, how reliable is this, the experiments that are being done there, does that correlate to prestige? So while everyone seems to acknowledge, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that, that uh, prestige correlates with excitement and exciting research, nobody really knows whether... Uh, it also correlates with reliability. If you don't look at the data, and so we've looked at the data, and what we find is that the relation is often non-existent. So, for instance, if you look at statistical power in neuroscience, in the field of neuroscience, you find there's no the, the higher-ranking journals have do not have any higher statistical power in their uh, papers or in their experiments than the lower-ranking journals. And they're all, in general, pretty pretty low. I think the average is around hover hovers between forty and sixty percent. When the uh, requirement would be eighty percent. So in, in in that particular study, that's actually pretty bad. And uh, we find similar things in other aspects. So whether or not in certain um, disease models, the person who scores the outcome uh, of the treatment is actually blind to the grouping. Uh, this is only uh, the case in thirty percent of all cases. This is and not better in the good journals or anything. What I would expect this is something like this ought to be about 100 <laughs> percent, but it's actually really, really low. Um, and then, but then you have, so this is what it is for most cases, is that the evidence doesn't show that these prestigious journals are somehow uh, publishing more reliable um, experiments. And then there is a handful, uh, actually a little bit more than a handful now, there are about six fields um, where you can find uh, pretty solid evidence that the methodological rigor uh, of the experiments published in the high-ranking journals is actually lower than in other journals, uh, such that uh, the effect sizes are too large because the sample sizes are too low, which is the only way you can get, with low sample size, you get significant effects if the effects are too large, uh, which is what you get when you have a statistically variable um, results, and then uh, who would have thought this is such a exciting result, so we have to publish it in Nature. Nature goes, "Oh, this is a really exciting result, we have to publish it. And then people do the same experiment with larger sample size and find that the effect size is much, much smaller. Uh, and this is something that's uh, fairly well documented. And uh, no, there are other examples uh, such that the conservative estimate, or the conservative interpretation of that data is there's no relation between journal rank and Um, and statistical quality, or or methodological quality, and reliability. Um, However, if you look at all of those studies that show no effect, and then a bunch of studies that show a negative effect, and there's essentially no field that I know of where there would be a solid positive effect, I would argue that on the bottom, the bottom line is that if anything, if there's any relation, it's negative. And there's no positive relation, which means... And if you look at that in a, from a biological perspective or evolutionary biology perspective, it means that we have a huge um, supply of young researchers. Um, if you look at, you know, the number of applications per tenure track position, if you look at the number of applications for, for, um, for, for, for funding, and if you look at the funding rates and the big funders, uh, all of those are way below 50% which means there's a huge selection pressure, whether it's for funding, for tenure, for anything that really matters. We have a huge selection. And so all that is required, if you, if you see this from a, from a evolutionary biology perspective, is a tiny uh, aspect of this selection to be against reliability. And over time, you will have an exponential increase in the unreliability, Simple because every, it's a small effect. But you do this at every single funding cycle, at every single hiring cycle, you introduce a little bit of more unreliability. And we've been doing this for about 20 years. And maybe a little bit more. And what, what are the people who get hired in the system, what are they doing? They, of course, do what uh, every good teacher does. Uh, and in an evolutionary uh, uh, perspective, what every good species does, it, it teaches the next generation how to be successful. Namely, by publishing a lot and not publishing it in high-ranking journals. It doesn't really matter what you publish, but where you publish. This is what you need to do to get a job. And so maybe, and we don't know, of course we don't know whether there is a causation, um, but maybe, just maybe, the reason why now we're starting to talk in certain fields Uh, we're starting to talk about the reproducibility crisis or replication crisis, it's because we have been rewarding irreproducibility for the last 20 years and been punishing reproducibility.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wonder, can you model this? I mean, you sure you could, right? The where are we in the in the curve? Are we like peaking, like plateauing, maybe, like have we, or are we still in the exponential
2: <laughs> growth? So I don't, I don't, I don't know where. I don't, so people have not modeled the journal rank aspect. What people have done though is they have. There's two articles out there that have modeled. Um, the number of article aspects, so another aspect where people get selected on is not where they, only where they publish, but how much productivity. So productivity and quality are the ideas uh, that one would um, try to select on, such that public money gets spent on people that publish a lot of good stuff. Uh, and so the problem with quality I just outlined, uh, journal rank does not equal quality, unfortunately. Uh, and so people have, uh, what people have modeled is d- does, is productivity um, uh, good for science? And the, and the aspect here is that um, in order to achieve reliable science, one important, not the only one, but one important word because because right, we talked about uh, randomizing and, and blinding and these sorts of procedures, but of course one aspect is also statistical power. And statistical power, in many cases, in most cases, is down to sample size. And a study that needs uh, more, a larger sample size takes longer than one that takes half the sample size, but usually half the time. Um, and so what these two studies found is that if we prefer um, scientists that have published 10 papers over an equal, otherwise equal scientist, Uh, that is only published five papers, then what happens is that um, we select, again, for lower statistical uh, power, we select for lower sample sizes, um, and in effect, which leads to uh, an increase in false positive publications. Um, And this uh, uh, can actually be seen also in the empirical data. Um, There are now, I think, two or three papers on the so-called impact factor, for number of samples for sample size and the sample size. And they also find an inverse relationship between the impact factor and the impact factor, such that higher ranked journals publish uh, studies with lower sample sizes. And so this does seem to go, all this data does seem to, all, all do seem to point in the same direction that both our main criteria that we use for quantifying quality and productivity of uh, researchers um, are detrimental to science, um, which leads us again to this notion of Goodhart's law, uh, in that what people are trying to do is they're trying to maximising on the quantifications and not on the underlying principle of the quantification. So they're not maximizing on quality and productivity. What they're maximizing on is papers in high-ranking journals and many papers. And unfortunately, many papers in high-ranking journals it's all too often, not exclusively of course, this is not an easy relationship, this is a statistical relationship, but too often for scientists, high many high-ranking articles or many articles in high-ranking journals uh, is, is unfortunately not well enough correlated with uh, good research and productive researchers.
0: Okay, but we would scrap all that. Like, let's see, like we can hit the reset button. Like how would now the ideal, academic world look like? Because we still have all these people pouring into these programs, wanting to become PhD and researchers and competing for tenured positions and wanting to bring their research out. So what's what's your ideal, what's your utopia?
2: So there's a lot of people who think that, uh, oh, we just have to get rid of those numbers and everything will be fine again. Uh, I'm not one of those reactionary um, idealists. in the best of all worlds, this would work, of course. But we've seen uh, what happens when uh, peer assessment is the only thing that counts. It may, what then happens is that it counts who you know, uh, who your best friend is, and uh, who you're sucking up to. And uh, we certainly don't want to go back to that part of science. I think it's pretty clear that we want to leave that behind us. And the current way of doing it um, may even be more detrimental uh, if science isn't replicable anymore. Uh, and so I think what we should be doing is we should be uh, progressing. We should be using numbers to control and check whether the system we have in place is good or whether we have to modify it. We should implement a system of evidence-based science. <laughs> Which is funny enough because science is the it's, it's the way you create evidence in the first place. Um, and so... Um, the, there's there's two aspects. So there's a principle and the practical aspect. The principle aspect is that we need to be able to measure everything scientists do, and that is science and teaching, that and service. And we need to be able to measure it simply because there's more to a good scientist than publishing articles. People collect data. People write code. People teach. People review. People. Uh, administer uh, and uh, administer. In many cases, um, uh, university self-administration means that you do not have professional deans and these sorts of uh, administrators that in other organizations are professionals. Um, and so, all of these things need to be evaluated, and all of these things need to be uh, quantified. Um, the aspect, the, the 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 positive aspect of this is that uh, it makes it impossible to game single variables. It also devalues by inflation. If we have many, many different things that we measure, it devalues any single measure because once we have all those measures, it's clear we are a multifaceted uh, uh, we are multifaceted individuals. and just looking at one single thing can also, even if it's outstanding and, and huge, it just means that, well, this person is a very insular talent and can't really do anything else but this one single thing. It is my firm conviction that the only way we can get out of this uh, is to um, get rid of the journal system altogether. There are no technical or other reasons why we should keep them. Anything a journal can do, a modern infrastructure or modern, modern IT can do better. So if we get rid of journals and the journal system, there is really nothing that we can't, of those things that we do want to keep. There's many things we want to get rid of anyway, like journal rank. Um, but there are other things like uh, sorting by relevance and other sortings uh, 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 that we can easily easily duplicate. With, yeah, with, no problem. with 20-year-old technology, we can do that. After all, the journal system is an invention of the 17th century, and uh, I have not yet to meet someone who can convince me that 17th century information technology beats 21st century information technology. (laughs) Um, And uh, I feel pretty pretty tall for anybody to try and convince anybody that this would work. Uh, And so this is not an issue. Technically, this is not a problem. Um, What keeps journals alive, though, and uh, this is something that is actually uh, historically quite interesting. So the physicists were the first who act to act on their uh, dissatisfaction with the journal system by implementing the archive, a preprint archive, in 1991. Now, this is almost 30 years ago. This is 28 years ago. To this day, the physicists, even those that exclusively work on archive, they still have to submit their articles that are an archive that everybody knows, everybody in their field knows, they still have to submit them to journals, many of them the subscription journals that nobody reads anymore because all their colleagues are on archive. So for 28 years, we've been paying subscriptions to journals that hardly anybody reads. The only reason why physicists and some mathematicians, it varies from field to field, But the only reason that these uh, articles still exist in these journals, even though nobody nobody reads them, is so that you can write on your CV that you've published in these journals. So 28 years of a parallel publishing system where one is being used and one is not being used. It's just there for the CV. And so this is, I think, a very stark uh, um, example of how... A group of scientists thought, oh, we'll just make an alternative system and the old one will go away because nobody uses it anymore. No, it's still there. Nobody uses it, but it's still there because some aspect of the usage, and by using, of course, I mean reading, right? That's what journals are for, right? that main function is reading and not, uh, uh, the act, and not providing tenure and funding, that's not their primary job. And, but because one aspect is tenure and funding, the system still exists,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so there's nothing really that we can do here as scientists individually with our choices. Even if we publish, uh, 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 or even if we if we all use preprints, the uh, like the all of scholarship, we still will have the journals, right? If physicists couldn't do it in 28 years, why should we be? Why should anybody else be able to do it in two years or something? That's some, some, some other uh, interesting. Uh, Projections I have heard, right? So 28 years, and this parallel system is still there.
1: Hmm.
0: I mean, um, the the argument for uh, or against uh, moving everything to the to the preprint archives. Uh, that's what we hear all the time is um, the peer review, basically the quality control. So if you just, I mean, that's basically the argument for yeah. the.
2: So there's two. There's two. There's two aspects to that. For one. Uh, I just yesterday talked to a physicist and he said peer review is really not necessary simply because um, you don't want to publish something that hurts your uh, reputation. Uh, And if you publish silly stuff, it hurts your reputation and you won't get a job. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is that I find really, really weird is that people, and I hear that also very often, is that people seem to equate peer review with journals. As if the journals had a monopoly on peer review. As if... Uh, and I don't really know uh, that this exists, as if we would have never given our manuscripts to anybody else to read before we submitted it to a journal. I mean, we do peer review before we submit it to a journal. Like most of the things that we write, we give to someone else to read before we submit it. So uh, I, I find it very hard to understand why people think that peer review is something that only journals can do, uh, especially at those journals where we are both editors and reviewers. So, uh, I have not met anybody yet who could explain to me why the thing that we are doing, namely editing and peer reviewing, must necessarily be tied to a 17th century invention. Clearly, uh, there is nothing that keeps us, uh, if we want to have the kind of classical peer review uh, still in existence, to do this on a non-journal basis. And there's plenty already plenty of journal-independent peer review services uh, that one can take and implement, and even have compete against each other. So this, from for these two reasons I see, I do not see why that is uh, any particular problem. On the contrary, if I have a, a modern system that handles this in the 21st century way, not in the 17th century way, I can just have a button and say, oh, I don't even want to see period physics literature. What's the point? I'm a biologist. I can't read that stuff anyway. For physics... For any new physics breakthrough, I want to see news and news articles and review review articles, not the original articles. And then for uh, things that are biology, uh, probably most of that is also, I wouldn't understand the, you know, hardcore molecular biology things. Uh, I would probably just want to have news and news articles for that as well. And then if it's neurobiology, yeah, then I only want to see peer-reviewed stuff. And for the things that are directly in my field where I'm a peer... I do not need another peer to read it for me. if I would need that, I wouldn't go to conferences, but at the conferences I would get mostly non peer reviewed stuff so anybody who goes to a conference and tells me uh, that they uh, definitely need a peer to look over their stuff, I would question whether their argument is really ingenious because if i want to if i if I consequently uh, state that I only want to have peer reviewed science uh, as my input, then uh, I cannot go to those conferences because most of the stuff that I see there on posters and talks is not peer-reviewed. So, uh, I see that is the kind of uh, system that I would like to have. The one where I can tailor what I see to my demands and to my needs and not to what some editor somewhere thinks should be in this issue or not or in a more specialized journal. So, um, uh, and the way to get there, clearly, uh, is to get rid of the journals. The journals need to go away. Uh, and they can go away in several ways. Uh, I think the one that impacts uh, academic freedom the least is simply to not, not, to not uh, reimburse or pay for the journal system anymore. So our institutions should realize that the journal system harms science. Uh, An aspect that we didn't talk about, the second aspect of why it harms science, is that we're overpaying the journal system by about a factor of 10. So the publication services that the journal system provides, um, when we would uh, do it ourselves, would be about 10 percent of what we're currently paying. So we cannot justify it for the taxpayer either. So our journal system harms science and is tax waste, so it's not cost effective so we cannot justify it towards scientists and we could not justify it towards the taxpayer to keep it running and i think those two points should be clearly enough to say okay enough is enough until now we do not we are uh, we have supported a system which is too expensive and bad for science now we will not support the system anymore and we will not pay for open access charges or for subscriptions anymore what we will do is we will use that money to implement a modern infrastructure that is cost-effective and that does not hurt science. In 2019, the way we write papers should happen in the following way, right? I mean, I write code to generate data to control my experiment. And it generates uh, the data, it saves the data, That's code that I've written or someone else. And, and then I write code to evaluate the data and make graphs and make uh, the statistics. And so I have the code, I have the data, and then I sit down and write a paper and what I should be doing is in the methods section, for instance, I say, oh, when I solve this problem computationally like that, I just drag and drop a code piece in there, and it's there. And if people want to see what's going, what's, what's happening above and below that code piece, they click on it and they have the code. And then if in the results section there's a figure, I drag and drop it from my evaluation sheets that I'm generating because I'm discussing it at lab meeting, I'm dragging and dropping it in there, and I have a figure, and I just have to write the legend. And if someone wants to know the code and the data behind that figure, they click on the figure and they get the data and the code. And uh, currently we're paying for just the journals alone about $10 billion worldwide every year. And if a factor of 10 is what we're overpaying, it means we have about $9 billion that we're currently wasting on stuff that we don't need.
1: Hmm.
2: And I looked, so the question is, what can we buy? What is that sort of infrastructure that's so nice and helpful and open? Uh, Is that something we can pay with nine billion a year? So I checked the LHC costs about two to three billion uh, to run and and build if you take all the money divided by the number of years it's running. And the ISS is about the same. So from nine billion, From nine billion a year, we can build another LHC, we can build another ISS, and have about three billion left for that kind of infrastructure that we want. The idea of of just canceling subscriptions is one that has been around for almost, no, not quite 10 years, but uh, I would
0: say. It has happened as well,
2: right? I mean, the whole Elsevier fight. Yeah, people are are canceling subscriptions, but people are not going to say, few people are saying, no, we're also not paying APCs or other open access journals anymore. That's uh, not the same. So um, uh, this is not something that one usually hears. Uh, and if you do talk to librarians, and as I have for the last five or six years, it's virtually impossible to convince them that cutting subscriptions and, and not paying for APCs uh, is something that uh, would be in their power to do. They just would say, "Oh my right, no, I can't, I can't do that. Um, um, because the scientists uh, would come and tell me, no, you have to do it, you have to do it. And of course, scientists sit on library committees and they can force libraries to do what they want. So just to tell libraries to use their money for something else uh, doesn't work because libraries are governed. I sit on the library committee of our university. Uh, libraries do what we tell them to do. And I'm only one of, what is it, 15 faculty members that said they're representing the 15 different uh, faculties that we have at our institution uh, and so I can't do that myself even even though this is what I tell the library to do but there <laughs> are 14 other voices um, so no what I think must happen is there need to be some coercive force and the reason for that is that the infrastructure that we talked about right the technology is there we have everything. we got the version control. One example is always a nice example. Um, uh, and there are many. for any, any functionality that we would like to have, but we don't currently have, um, there is an example like that. So I'll just give you this one example and uh, then you can think of other examples. Uh, and one of them is, is uh, sharing code and version control. So I looked up one of the first instances that scientists have shared code was by sending each other punch cards. For an a Univac machine in 1953. So this is the earliest recording that I could find where scientists have shared code. Um, this, of course, was uh, uh, done on these paper punch cards where people sent each other those punch cards, um, which is the equivalent of you know posting your code on GitHub today. Uh, then version control systems that would make it easier for people to collaboratively write on code uh, exist since the 1980s. And yet, it is uh, far from common that these kinds of this kind of technology gets provided by our institutions by default. We have to ask them to it, uh, we have to look for it, uh, even though some are now starting to provide GitLab repositories, most of them are not hooked up uh, to others, such that if someone, if a friend of mine sits in Australia and I want to to collaboratively work with him on a piece of code, I can't do it because their GitHub GitLab doesn't talk to my GitLab. Right. So if this, uh, if, if code sharing has been around for a good 60, 70 years, and 30, about 30 years, we've had tools, digital tools to support that. And it's not commonplace yet. I think it's fair, it's a fair guess to say that there's something keeping our infrastructure institution from providing it, right? Because the demand is there, the solution is there, but we don't get the solutions. And so you have these sorts of examples for all kinds of other functionalities, like uh, collaborative uh, authoring systems also are not provided, Um, and many other examples. Uh, And this all seems to point to the evidence that infrastructure uh, institutions probably uh, have something more important to do than to provide us with the infrastructure that we need for working well. Uh, and so there's some coercive force that is required. And uh, what could be that coercive force? Could be several things, but one of them uh, could be that research funds will be withheld from universities that do not meet a certain level, a certain minimal certified level of uh, scholarly digital infrastructure such as code sharing uh, and uh, version control systems, such as collaborative authoring systems, these sorts of things. And one could, and then one could say, okay, um, if you're not a certified university, you cannot get money. This is a very standard thing. Like the Trump University can apply to the NSF for money as much as they want. They won't get any money. They don't even look at the applications. So only certified universities get uh, their applications reviewed Uh, On a ministerial level, you could also say that, okay, I'm the ministry here, this is what you have to implement. uh, If you want to have any baseline funding at all. Uh, And uh, if the universities and other institutions, if they complain, well, this costs money, then one can uh, either add that to the certification or one can suggest that subscription funds and other publication funds for uh, legacy systems such as journals uh, are a very good source of money to implement. Uh, these sorts of systems for those that want and those that uh, need. And uh, for your institutions that have enough funds, they can keep it going the way they want. And then, um, importantly, if these parallel systems exist, sort of like the preprint and the journal system, uh, the only thing that um, counts when one applies for new funding is the documents, data, and code, that are deposited on that modern system. So not only is funding withheld from institutions, not only is funding withheld from journals, it's also that the content in journals is disregarded with regard to promotion, tenure and funding.
1: Um, so I thought he was very radical, um, and it kind of made me think of that thing in The Matrix where um Neo goes in and there's a little boy, and he's bending the spoon of his mind, and he's like, the trick is to think not to move the spoon, but that there is no spoon. and he's it's kind of like that's how I felt talking to beyond Brahms. it was it was there there is no spoon, there is no need for any of this. It's not that we have to find a solution within this system. We can just get rid of the whole system.
0: That's really cool. I mean, I, it's a really cool analogy as well. For me, it's kind of hard to grasp this concept of, okay, so we don't have a journal. And it could very well be because I'm used to having a journal, um, but maybe there is a value to a journal. It's just maybe it doesn't have to be a, uh, you know, behind paywall uh, for profit journal. That's yeah. a different
1: story. But I think, I don't know, I like stories. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm from the humanities, so obviously stories are, are big um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, like now this weekend, we had the long night of sciences at NDC,
0: yes. And um, everybody, every I mean, we had something like 300 scientists um, developed a program, delivered it on the day. And all of the program was some kind of story, yeah. you know, telling people the relevance of... What's being done in in the labs here, and I think, and it's really reaching people. People do, you know, like these people are coming out and like, yeah. oh, I really learned something today. Um, yeah. It's because of the stories, I
1: think. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, to be fair, we put we probably shouldn't. We, we didn't ask Beyond directly about this. We didn't challenge yeah, this, no. and he may have a re- response, which of course he's more than uh, welcome to to put on the Twitter yeah. or whatever. Um, but I think this is something I'd really like to hear the viewpoints of researchers on and the viewpoints of, of people working in, in open science. So, you know, our colleagues in, in various projects across Europe. So this is something I'd really like to maybe get people to comment on a bit in on on Twitter. And, and you know, um, maybe we could do a follow up in a few months, um, kind of a, a back and forth thing, so that yeah, would be
0: really cool. That would be cool. What I really, really liked about um, what he said was this idea of um, basically making like make it very easy for researchers to share data, for example, to yes. uh, have all these like automatic processes and uh, yeah, um, having someone helping you with that because this is something I think this is really will be would be a total game changer if you would not have to be trolled by you know lack of technology (laughs) like yeah you you really want to do something but you don't really know how and there's nobody to help and and it's like ah too much
1: and then just do the same thing that everybody else done before so if you do want to um comment on what bjorn uh has been talking about uh what we've been talking about um please follow us on twitter so it's oosp underscore orion pod um just follow us we'll follow you back and you can comment on this podcast or any of the others and you can message us um oh if you want to talk to us more directly uh, you can email us at orion at mdc-berlin.de we'd love to hear from you if you've got your own ideas if you'd like to be on the show um or you think someone you know would be a good guest on the show uh please send us your suggestions and that's it for today that's it for today Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lots to think about.
0: Yeah. Thank you for listening today. Um, The music, as always, brought to you by Fabio de Miguel. The sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira.
1: Yeah, and this podcast was made possible um, as part of the Orion Open Science Project, an EU-funded project. Find out more on the website. Just search Orion uh, Open Science Project and you'll find loads of training resources and interesting things there.
0: And there's even a MOOC coming up. There is a MOOC. Stay Stay tuned. tuned.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Goodbye.